Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. Singapore Noodles is an online platform with the mission of keeping Singaporean food heritage alive. And today on the show with me, I have Joanna Chua, who is the founder of Weird and Wonderful Edibles. So this is a business that encompasses workshops, talks, and the selling of unique and homegrown produce. I had so much fun talking to Joanna and I hope that you'll enjoy the following conversation. Maybe you could start by telling me a little bit about um, what you guys do and how it all started. Okay, so um, essentially what we do is we sell rare produce. Um, and, you know, we do that by, of course, bringing in seeds from overseas. Um, ideally, we would get them from Southeast Asian, Asian countries like Vietnam, Thailand, India. And um, we would then plant them in our plots and um, supply them to whoever's interested in buying them. Occasionally, in the past, we did get people who wanted to commission us to grow specific herbs. So in those situations, they would already have their own cuttings and seeds, and um, we would just be there to help them grow um, the produce. So that's essentially what we do. We also do gardening kits and gardening books. It was not really started with the intention of it becoming a business. Uh, it was more of just, you know, I had extra produce and um, I didn't want to waste it. So I put it up on carousel and was like, okay, you know, you pay as you wish for a box of edible flowers. And I think that it, um, you know, there was a community who needed this. So um, I decided that, okay, you know, why not sell go on to sell flowers for a reasonable price and build this this community and build um, this interest in local produce. And back then, who were your initial customers? Was it chefs? So they tend to be more like private home bakers. So yeah, we, we bridged the, the market um, in that respect because I think a lot of the farms in Singapore, they only supply if you have a minimum quantity that you've ordered. So they call it MOQ. Mm. Um, you don't have that. So, uh, you know, you can just tell us off the bat what you like and if we have it, we just supply it, you know. Mm, and I see that you guys are kind of diversifying from edible flowers to more of like native vegetables. How did that transition come about? Okay, so I think it was a very natural transition to, to do that because, um, you know, when you start supplying flowers, um, the market is just extremely tiny. And, um, but there are some overlapping, you know, um, areas of interest when you grow edible flowers and organic flowers the way that we do. So, um, you know, there was a community that was interested in local native herbs, for example, that used to grow in Singapore and don't grow here now because of deforestation and land reclamation and all of that. So, you know, we decided, okay, we're going to set up a project just to investigate um, this kind of produce and to help keep the seeds for these kinds of plants. When you said set up a research project, was it more academic? Um, it is not academic. It is actually more of just uh, an informal record of uh, what is growing now in some of the farm spaces who I'm friends with. So um, farm owners in the Kranji area that are interested to have us over and are willing to let us take some of their, their plants to be kept somewhere else. And I read on an interview that you guys, apart from conducting research with these farmers, you also go down to the wet markets, right? 
Yeah, so we do. Yeah, so I, I do go down to the wet markets pretty often and I don't just do it in Singapore. I do it everywhere I go, every, every country I travel to. So um, I find the produce in Singapore markets to be a little bit limited uh, simply because we don't, we don't have the land space to be growing, you know, all sorts of wild plants and it probably costs you know, there's, there's certain costs that you have to assign to things that you put on the wet market here. But in places, you know, overseas in Southeast Asia, you can find all sorts of weeds that grow in the mountains or by the paddy fields in Thailand. And, you know, they're extremely delicious. So, mm. yeah, we, we yeah. try to bring seeds, yeah. And sometimes you do see them here in Singapore growing wild as well, just mm. not in the same quantities. Yeah, I find it really sad that now the... I'm sure the diversity and the abundance of vegetables in wet markets have definitely diminished over the years, right? Because there is a lack of demand. What are some vegetables that you feel should return to the wet market? So there is this um, kind of paddy, paddy field wheat that, that I like to eat a lot. Um, it's called, the name escapes me, but essentially it has a yellow flower that looks like a daffodil. And it's something like a water hyacinth type plant. Um, and it's very, it has very crisp and tender stalks um, that you can just stir fry and um, a little bit bitter tasting uh, as you get with wild plants, but um, essentially very yummy. So if you've ever had water hyacinth before, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, and I mean, if you try selling that to anyone in Singapore, I think that they would be a bit irked by it because they're like, oh, isn't this like a weed? And, you know, I don't think that we should be eating something like this. It's like in freshwater swarms. It's a little bit dirty. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny that you say that because um, my husband works, he works in the agriculture industry and he used to give um, tours, kind of like farm tours to children. And he was commenting about how a lot of these school children, if you give them something from a plant, they would think that it's dirty, right? Because it doesn't come from a bag. I think that Singapore is a little bit too sanitized. So um, I used to give farm tours in the Kranji area and um, with, with school kids. And, you know, their teachers would be there sort of coddling them and saying, okay, don't, you know, don't run in the mud. You know, keep your hands out of the, out of the water. And I feel like, um, you know, children these days, uh, probably not made the same way that I, you and I may have been made, you know, <laughs> like I grew up running um, into the forest on weekends, you know, I grew up climbing trees. Um, yeah. yeah. Really? And you're 25, yeah. you, you climbed trees when you were younger? Yeah, when I was younger, I climbed trees. That's so cute. And wrangled snakes because I used to stay near a forested area. So there were snakes and monkeys and we, yeah, we wrangled those, those animals. <laughs> Actually, it's a lot about your upbringing, right? The environment in which you were brought up in. For example, for me, I used to grow up at Lakeview, which is in Upper Thompson. And it's right next to, I mean, it's connected to Macritchie Reservoir. So all the residents can just go straight into the reservoir from our estate. Ah, yes, I know where that is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's super beautiful because the view overlooking our house is actually the forest, right? And I remember when I was younger, I used to like catch caterpillars and ants. Yeah. So, you know, I really feel that it's a very different childhood um, compared to, you know, children now in Singapore where, like what you said, it's very sanitized. I remember 
because I'm living in Victoria in Australia, uh, do you know that Bjorn Lowe is uh, Bjorn Lowe's family is actually living here? Like no, not in the same town, but in Victoria as well. Oh no no I didn't know that I did not know that. Yeah yeah Bjorn Lowe from um, Edible Garden. Edible. Yeah, yeah so um so we we all know each other so there was once we went to their house to to stay for a while I think it was maybe a weekend trip. And we met their, their kids. So two, two small boys, I think about four when we, when we went. And they were able to point out like, oh, that's a stick insect. This is a jumping spider. And I was like so amazed at how in tune they were to nature. They had chickens growing in, in their backyard. And the kids yeah. would, would just like cuddle them and they would eat peas fresh from the pot. And I was just thinking, it's such a different childhood. Do you think such a childhood is possible now in Singapore? Okay, so that's a very good question. I think that the reality is the possibility for these childhoods is decreasing because as we, we become more urbanized, um, you know, now with the, the farm's leases ending in 2022, um, a lot of these natural spaces which have wild plants growing, which are not tamed um, and very, you know, just free are being taken back. So um, the opportunity to put yourself in that situation, to, to let your kids have those experiences here in Singapore uh, is, you know, ever decreasing. Yeah, ever decreasing. So I remember uh, when I was younger, my grandfather used to bring me to one of these fruit orchards um, in near the zoo, actually, uh, near the Singapore Zoo. It was, I think, a private fruit orchard where they grew things like uh, lychee, rambutans, so in August, when the season comes for those fruits, um, you know, we would just go there and we would run along the hills and we would pick the fruits and we would spend the afternoon there. You know, my grandfather would just be having tea somewhere and the kids would be running around without, you know, anyone to care for them. And we could have just tumbled into a ditch and no one would have known. But, you know, I think that is that sense of, um, you know, finding out what you like at, the, at that young age and um, connecting with something that is not uh, being forced onto you, right? Like not um, like ballet or, or piano, right? Something that you actually enjoy doing. I think that kids nowadays don't have that opportunity as much as they used to in Singapore. Mm, you mean avenues for play and to be yeah, avenues for play because I mean if you think about it a lot of the URA developments uh, yeah you know they they're, they're trying to create new parks new allotment gardens but very rarely do you hear them you know considering what young children um, really need in terms of you know the cognitive development and the phys phys physiological development, right? Um, just interacting with nature because, I mean, when you, when you climb trees, your muscles develop in a different way. Um, you know, you become more flexible and it's something that I just don't see in kids nowadays. Like sometimes I, sometimes I see them and they run and they fall and they break bones. I'm just like, that is, that is wild because it would never happen to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean in your line of work now you come across a lot of children, right? And you interact a lot with them. So what are some of the values that you wish to instill in them through your interactions with them? Okay, so I think um, you know, coming from this horticulture gardening background, um, one of the most important things two of the most important things, uh first is patience uh and determination, those two things uh, are, are interlinked. 
Uh, and it's just so important to have that, you know, in today's world. Uh, I think everyone in Singapore is a little bit fast paced and we tend to, you know, think that, you know, everyone else's schedule should be should revolve around us. But, you know, in the natural world, it doesn't happen that way. So patience and determination, um, as well as um, attention. So the ability to pay attention to something is um, perhaps one of those skills that is lacking a little bit in children nowadays because, you know, you're constantly distracted by uh, media, you know, your smartphones, uh, and you lose this ability to just be still in the moment and focus on something. You know, I feel sad when I see children in Singapore now. When I'm in Australia, I see, you know, my friends, you know, even people of my age group, they're having a lot of fun outdoors because it's been something in their culture for the longest time you know like they grew up going on hikes going on bushwalks so how can we encourage children to go out more into the would you say into the wild or would you think that a better approach is to bring nature to people by gardening at home for example yeah, so, so that is a possibility. I think that, you know, you could have a two-pronged approach. I mean, of course, there needs to be these urban spaces, these green spaces, we call them, that um, allows for this in the first place. And, um, you know, with the, the growing gardening movement in Singapore, I think that more people are um, trying to bring nature back. So, you know, they're starting small by growing, you know, a basil plant in their kitchen windowsill or, you know, um, trying to grow a cutting that they found at the supermarket. And, you know, this is all really new to them. And um, I think that it's good that we have this outlet for people to explore. But I just wish that we had more of it in the public space. Mm, which is what you're doing right now, right? With your talks and with all the information that you're sharing on social media. Yeah, like I've been looking through your Instagram and it's so interesting because I think recently I saw this god that you grew in a Buddha mold and it looked like a Buddha. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, all these experimental fun things. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was very creative and very like playful. How do you come across that idea of, you know, put it, letting it grow in that mold? Also, oh, it's actually something that was trending, uh, I think, in the Chinese markets. So, you know, like overseas, there is a huge, like, like you said, right, a huge market for uh, horticulture and not just growing, but also, you know, the tools are more advanced. The methods of growing are, um, you know, more interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, they in China, they do all sorts of crazy things. Like they can dwarf banana trees that are like really tall and they can put fruits in square molds or like Buddha shaped molds. And uh, yeah, so it is definitely, there's some gap, I think, between Singaporean farmers and what is being done overseas. I'm sure you know this as well with your husband, you know, growing, growing produce in Australia. Yeah, we definitely see that because, you know, I, I think just in terms of what you can do overseas, in terms of the expertise, right, it's not quite there in Singapore yet. So, you know, I think there is a lot of room for people like you, for people like Olivia from Tender Gardener to really educate the public and to encourage people to grow more things. Because right now I see a lot of people trying to grow things like Gong Gong at home, especially when the with the government giving away seed packs, right? Yeah. yeah. So does, yeah. That, um, does that motivate you? Does it hearten you in any way? Yeah, so it's, it's great to be able to see this. I mean, when I first started out in 2016, there was 
pretty much no uh, incentive for people to to do this. And you know, if if you told them that I'm gardening, it's a little bit of an odd hobby. It's it was seen as a, a little bit of a strange thing to do, especially since I'm so young. But I think with the millennial crowd, um, there has been this interesting shift towards growing more plants. And uh, yeah, it's extremely heartening. I think because you know, less and less millennials are invested in, you know, wanting kids uh, and they uh, just, they just have this void, the millennial void, I call it, that, <laughs> that they need to fill and they, and they decide to do it with plants because plants are the most easiest, you know, you, ha you have least commitment to it, but it's still a living thing, right? So yeah, like yeah. a child, you don't need to change the diapers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do see it now, you know, I see this trend where people are like hashtag plant mama or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I realized that is that a lot of millennials like to grow things that are ornamental. So things like Monstera or like money plant, but not very many grow edible plants. Yeah. Is there something, you, uh, is there something that you notice as well? Yes, uh, it's something that I've noticed and I think it's because um, the edible plants tend to be either very large in size or they tend to, um, uh, to be um, what we call annual plants as opposed to perennial plants. So, you know, you constantly need to be reseeding them. They need more attention than ornamentals because they are, you know, the pests, of course, feed on them as well. So um, I think in terms of attention and care, um, edible plants require much, much more and which explains why people tend to grow ornamentals, especially beginner gardeners, which most millennials are in Singapore. Mm. Yeah. You know, I read one interview that you did, I think it was pretty re recent, about how one of the missions that you have is to kind of bring back the kind of fruits and vegetables that our ancestors have been cooking and eating, but have now been forgotten about. So can you tell me a little bit of that motivation? Okay, <clears throat> so my, my family actually used to stay at Pulau Ubin. Um, my mom was born there. My grandparents, you know, owned a house there. They, they had one of these kampong houses on stilts, basically. And, um, you know, they used to, my grandma used to tell me that they would just grow their own medicine at the backyard. Uh, whatever fruit that they needed, they harvested. Whatever seafood they needed, they, they went out and fished for. So, um, you know, she also is a very good cook, both her and my mom. And uh, they would always tell me, oh, you know, this plant is no longer available in the market or this fruit you can't find anymore and uh, you know it tastes like this or it, it smells like this and uh, you know I think for me I'm a little bit of a purist when it comes to food I like to to try what it, it originally tastes like so I'm not a big fan of fusion food um, but yeah so you know that inspired me to really go out and hunt down for these kinds of um, fruits and vegetables and bring them back and from, from, from pretty, pretty much the dead <laughs> and uh, use them in, in my recipes. Yeah, mm -hmm. because even if I had sold it to a restaurant, I'm not sure if they know what it is and know how to use it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, I feel that documentation when it comes to local produce is severely lacking. Like when yeah. I was writing my cookbook, I realized that there was hardly any information or literature online for say things like Roselle or, yeah. you know, there is this um, 
there's this weed-like plant called Hong Tian Wu. You probably see it a lot in wet markets and it's like a medicinal plant. But because it's known by its, um, by its uh, colloquial name or its uh, Chinese name, you know, it's very hard to find information about that on English-based sites, you know, it's really, I think it's called Cecil Joy Wheat, but it's yeah. like, when you go online and look, there is hardly any information. So, yeah. how do you think we can get around this? Okay, so, I mean, um, if you're trying to search inwards uh, in Singapore, the best source that you have is probably the National Library because they do have very good um, archives of traditional recipes okay that incorporate these kinds of plants and if you go far back enough into the 80s and the 90s you'll be able to see um, you know a very clear picture of what was being grown at certain time frames in Singapore and uh, then you can probably figure out um, what people were doing with that produce um, but my advice for anyone who doesn't like to read and who prefers you know to have experience um, is to just go to malaysia for example or go to thailand go to vietnam and see how they use this produce in their cooking because that's essentially a lot of what i do um, i go overseas i you know go to the wet markets and ask them how do you cook this and you know sometimes you really need to pay attention because with these wild foods, uh, they tend to be toxic sometimes and you need to process them in a certain way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that I had one unfortunate incident where I ate a palm fruit that was not supposed to be eaten raw. <laughs> and, and yeah, but you know, um, you, you have to probably go outside of Singapore to be able to find um, information on this. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was the same experience for you. Hmm. I find that it's a bit of a vicious cycle in that because, you know, um, people don't know how to cook with these ingredients or don't know the best way to eat it, uh, there is a lack of demand. And because of that, the vendors at the wet market stop supplying these things. And then because it's so difficult to find these things, Singaporeans just stop cooking or looking for these ingredients, you know? Yeah, yeah. It is the problem. It's a chicken and egg problem, which I um, I think that the only way to solve it really is to um, increase the demand for unusual produce, right? Um, create a market for that and um, to have people be willing to try something different because it is consumer centric. Um, in the wet markets, I think now we are seeing a little bit more um, but it's mostly just imported from the West or, um, you know, it's Western-centric, interesting produce. So like purple carrots, you know, you start seeing them at the wet markets, for example, right? Um, but yet there is very little incentive to be supplying, you know, things like gutu cola, you know, or things like balloon vine, you know, um, which is used in, you know, traditional Indian cooking, for example. You don't find it. Uh, and I think it's just too expensive to be offering them at the wet market for these vendors as well. So it's a cost consideration. Yeah, exactly. And you know, like now, I feel that it's very hit to to kind of focus on what is local, right? Or like what is heritage food or heritage flavors. It's like the new in thing. But you know, like in a lot of these kind of heritage pop-ups, heritage restaurants, uh, I feel that even though they are championing local produce, I find that those local produce are not things that 
the common man can actually find for him or herself. You know what I mean? It's like specially grown for the chef and specially ordered. So I think there is a bit of a barrier there, you know. We have become consumers, you know. We we, We think that, oh, we are supporting local by just being mere consumers, but we are not taking a very active role in that. Yeah, agreed. So, I mean, you could easily just decide instead of growing mints in your house, you could grow things like gutu cola, you know, or, or something else, right? And um, I think that that's essentially the place that we, I want to get people to, where they don't feel the need to be growing things like basils or like, um, you know, uh, lemon balm, but they can grow more interesting kinds of, of produce and know how, to, know how to eat it as well, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's really about bringing it back into the household, normalizing it, and um, shaking off this idea that, okay, if it's edible, it's got to be a, it's got to fit into a certain category of edible produce, you know, like herb or something. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Mm. I feel that there are a lot of boxes when people think about local produce, you know. People are not very excited about local produce as compared to things from the West, like you mentioned, like purple carrots, right? So that was one thing that I felt very strongly about when I wrote Wet Wet Market to Table because I felt like people were not just... Uh, young Singaporeans, but wet market vendors themselves, they were thinking about these plants in a very fixed way. Like, for example, if you have cassava, the only way you could cook with it was to make kueh. Or if you have, like, some leafy vegetable, the only way that you can harness its potential is by using it in a stir-fry or making it into soup, you know? So what are some learning um, experiences that you have had along the way, cooking with these things? Okay, for, for me at least, I take a lot of guidance from my grandma. So, um, you know, she would say, okay, actually, you know, with this particular herb, for example, when we use uh, rami nettle for uh, kuih making, you know, the one that makes it black in colour, mm. uh, she, she would say things like, okay, actually, you need to grind it and you need to um, dry it first before you mix it in. Or, you know, there are certain techniques that you have to follow. Um, beforehand and um, you know there's certain preparation there's a preparation process that that needs to go underway so um, that is something which for me at least if you are a western chef you're not used to 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 cooking this way Um, because sometimes it's a bit like arbitrary you know like you cook if you cook with if you make the original angkukwe recipe for example and you put sweet potato in you know, they don't measure how many cups of sweet potato you put in. It's a little bit embarrassing to do that. So, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a growing the sense of, of uh, being able to think on your feet in the kitchen um, and use produce based on taste. So I think that's something that I learned using um, produce that I grow myself is to really just try it and figure out what to do with it after. So there's no, there's none of this, oh, I see this produce in the recipe book and therefore I'm going to use it in my dinner. It's more of I'm growing this and how do I use it now? <laughs> so, you yeah. know, um, I get that a lot with uh, my ulam raja or all the, all the herbs that I put in my nasi ulam. It, it just... Um, it's there's no real process to it yeah yeah in terms of yeah exactly um because sometimes when wax grows things at home 
you know, the taste can vary so much compared yeah. to what you get outside. You know, I was so surprised when he, when he first gave me his produce to try because some days it might be, maybe he's growing chili. Some days it could taste like mild, like a capsicum. And then yeah. some days it would be like batshit spicy, you know, depending on the conditions that has been grown in. Whereas if you go to say NTUC or Xingxiong, like it's almost the same every single time, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it's really, I mean, this culture of standardized food really trains lazy chefs uh, I, I, I know that if I if this goes online I'm gonna get uh, <laughs> stabbed for it on the street or something or like lynched but um, it is true um, and there lacks originality in a lot of the cooking that I find exists here in Singapore and for this reason because if you constantly just cook according to a recipe book you cook according to certain rules and principles then you're never going to create something which um, inspires and is different um, and I feel that although I'm not a trained chef I mean you know what I can make from the garden is uh, far more interesting than what I can find in some restaurants. Mm. And do you feel like your experience as a gardener has kind of impacted the way that you cook as well? Yes. So I, I mean, I tell a lot of my close friends that, I mean, a lot of my close friends know this, that when I eat salad, I don't put any sauce, I don't process it at all. So it's just raw um, vegetables. And, uh, you know, typically it consists of stuff like tomatoes, kale, mince, you know, basils, and um, just nothing. And I think that it has affected the way my taste buds are. They are a little bit more sensitive. Uh, and I think because with plants, you get complex flavors. So um, you're able to pick that up a bit more, mm. I feel. Rather than just eating salty, sweet, spicy, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, this love for, for gardening and this love for cooking with your senses, it's very much, you know, linked to the Singaporean identity, right? Where a lot of our cooking is very intuitive, very aga-aga, right? Yeah. And I mean, our forefathers, a lot of them, they were foragers, they used to grow plants in Singapore. So how do you think we can encourage young Singaporeans to embrace this part of their Singaporean identity? Okay, so I'm going to link it back to your book. I mean, you just have to go to the wet markets, right? The most accessible thing for a young Singaporean now is the wet market. And it's also a culture that is quickly dying out. Um, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can watch videos of people cooking with interesting produce, but it will never be the same uh, as you going down to the wet market and asking the auntie like, hey, you know how to cook this? Uh? Or, you know, what, what is this good for, right? If you've never seen it in your life, then... Uh, why don't you just ask like things like Huai San, you know, the, the tulip? Yeah, uh, Chinese yam, right? Yeah, I think it's, is it called? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, the Chinese yam and there's also one Chinese tulip. I'm not sure if you oh, know. Oh, lily, lily bulb, is it? Yeah, lily bulb, yeah. So that one, um, you know, it's so, so delicious. It is just so yummy. Uh, yeah, but, it's, not, it's so naturally sweet, right? It's so naturally sweet and it's got the element aluminum taste the like uh, oniony taste to it um yeah so you know if you've never seen something like that then i think i encourage people to to just try and and learn how to cook it you know and that's probably the easiest way to get people interested in the first place it's just to go to the wet market <laughs> Yeah, and also, you know, you being a young person, I would love to ask you how we can package something that is so old school in a way that is modern and chic and sexy to, <laughs> to the young Singaporean. 
Because, you know, like how things look and, you know, the branding is very important, right? Because that is one of the biggest failures of Singapore's wet markets is the positioning is not very strong. So what do you think, how do you think we can position um, growing of local vegetables and cooking, of, uh, cooking these heritage recipes in a way that appeals to the young Singaporean? Okay, so I think that that's an excellent question. Um, I personally do, I do a lot of my um, educational work on this kind of produce through story sharing. And, um, you know, obviously taking good visuals of them helps, right? But if you are, for example, asking someone to go to the wet market or you're asking a vendor to, to sell his produce differently and market it differently, you, you can go online and you can tell the story of this produce. And, um, you know, all these vendors, they've been selling their vegetables for so many years. I'm sure that they have really good recipes that they can share, you know, about how to use, for example, like money tie, right? There are so many ways to cook it. Um, and I mean, the most common one is to cook it with egg and tomato, right? Mm. And, you know, and you have to process the money tie in a specific way. You know, you actually have to, you have to scrub it with salt, okay? And you have to put it in water. So this is, you know, all these fun facts that um, probably uh, hipster Singaporeans my age <laughs> might, might think it's a little bit cool because whenever I do tell my friends that they're like, oh my God, I never knew. And <laughs> yeah, and um, it's, it's about building that story behind it. You know, it's not just about the product. It's also about, you know, how it relates to you on that identity level. I think that that is what millennials and young people are really looking for because in a world which tells you that, oh my gosh, like you have to be a certain way. I think that, you know, everyone is struggling to find um, that piece of them that they can call, you know, themselves and find a zone for themselves also. Mm. You know, when you talked about all these fun facts, like, you know, scrubbing the money time you saw, right? I was just wondering how your, how your experience um, with, with chefs ha has been, because, you know, a lot of chefs, they are not very comfortable with using these local produce. And yet, you know, they, they might have very solid backgrounds in, say, Western cooking and Western ingredients. So has it been like a very humbling process for them? Oh, I mean, it's been a humbling process for me also. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, you may, you may think that your ingredient has to be processed in a certain way and then someone comes along and he says, actually, you know, it can be done differently. So it's, it's, a, learning, it's a learning curve for both of us. Like uh, Desmond, a friend of mine, Desmond from Magic Square, uh, he's now at Odette. He uh, turned one of my herbs into a, chili, into a chili paste. So he used my passion fruit marigold plant and it's a herb that has very floral notes. So I usually use that in tea and in salads, even in desserts, I use it like in ganache, for example, just to perfume the chocolate. He used it in chili. So it kind of blew my mind um, and, and it worked, right? So I, I think that um, my experience working with chefs has more of been telling them that, okay, actually, you know, uh, this particular plant traditionally is used in this way. So it's more of just an informative thing rather than to restrict them in how they use it, um, which I think is good to provide context. So yeah. I think a lot of my work is just providing context and never imposing about how certain things should be done. 
Exactly. Yeah. I feel like there should be so much more creativity applied to local produce. I think I was following Magic Square and I think they made a patai miso. Yes. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing, you know, to apply a technique from a different culture to our local produce, you know. And um, Labyrinth as well, Alastia, he's doing, he was doing this uh, kind of like a kosho, but with local lime. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, it's traditionally done with yuzu, right? So why can't you just use another kind of citrus? So, yeah. you know, things like that. I feel that there is so much potential for Singaporean food to grow and expand, you know. Yeah. So what are your own hopes um, for the Singaporean food industry? My own hopes. <laughs> uh, my own hopes, I think, would just be to, to be authentic, okay, um, and to learn more about where food comes from because that is so important you know toria when we talk about growing food the conditions of growing you know certain kinds of vegetables when they are in season you know um why you know we harvest you know tomatoes in a certain way so you know for example if i tell you that tomatoes should be picked you know when they are ripe uh, as opposed to waiting for the whole vine to ripen you know i think that somebody some people will just be like okay that's odd but you know why uh, it's because the plant redirects the energy in certain ways. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's just knowing the, the most efficient way to get the best taste out of plants. I think that that is an area which I wish more people in Singapore could go into instead of just learning, you know, cooking, cutting skills, you know, in, in the kitchen. I think it's more of having that eclectic mix of experiences that makes a great chef. I mean, if you looked at, you know, chef's table, a very cliche thing to watch, right? If you are a chef, you know, all of them have varied experiences. You know, they're not just a chef, right? They are a poet. They are avid travelers. You know, they are constantly learning and testing themselves, pushing the boundaries, you know. Um, and I think that the best chefs that I know, at least they merge two areas in their in their lives, you know, it's not just about cooking, but it's also about art, maybe, um, or science. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I hope that this sort of intersectional <laughs> um, kind of cooking comes into play. Yeah, soon. so true. You know, it's so coincidental because a while ago I was reading this book called, um, I think it's Range or something. So basically the author was talking about how it is so beneficial for us to think across different disciplines rather than just going deep into one because a lot of the famous painters or like writers, they actually, you know, are adept at different disciplines, you know? Like how, who is that, Michelangelo? I think he was not just a painter, but he had a very mathematical kind of view on things, right? So yeah, you know, I think it's fantastic what you're saying. And I think just taking... Me, for example, I, I think I've learned so much just by having Wex as my husband to kind of shed light on the whole growing process of food. Yeah. Because that is something that you never ever see in a professional kitchen, right? Yeah, you never like, see it. Yeah, we talk about reverence for food and things like that, but you never really truly understand reverence until you come into contact with a plant and you realize how long it takes to grow. Because yeah. 
you know, in the restaurant, maybe things come in like boxes or in cartons. But when I see how long it takes to actually grow, say, a tomato at home, you know, it really cultivates so much more respect and you learn so much more about, you know, valuing the entire plant rather than just choice bits, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and when it comes in a box, it's it's detached also, right? You know, it's a sense of like, oh, this is an object, as opposed to oh, this is this was a living thing, or this is a living thing, and you know, there was a, the whole journey of you know someone who grew it, and um, also you know the farming principles behind produce is really important. So I think that farmers and and chefs need to have that relationship where they pair up according to principles that they believe in. I mean, you can think of people like Dan Barber, you know, Stonehill Farms. Yeah, it's a, it's a very typical example that people use, right? Where you have that holistic relationship where you know, you know, exactly how your egg is going to turn out on the dinner plate because you, you've put in, you know, capsicums in the chicken feed, you know, and turned it, and turned it orange, for example, right? You know, so... Um, yeah, I think I think that needs to be this very um, deep connection with the land, um, and once you have that, then you can cook. Mm. Yeah, in the same vein, right? What do you think of the phrase "farm to table"? <laughs> <laughs> in the <laughs> okay, um, okay, uh, farm to table. It, it can be used very loosely. I think in Singapore, farm to table will slowly take on the meaning of hydroponics to table, which is not the same, okay? Um, I think also that if you're just growing stuff like bok choy, cabbages, you know, the, the normal stuff, then it's not truly farm to table. Because, you know, when we think of farm, we think of an ecosystem, you know, we think of a diverse range of, of plants, we think of supporting, you know, the animals that live there and the people that live there. And also this ideology, right? It, it comes with that whole package. So if you are going to be truly farm to table, then, um, you know, you have to ascribe to those values also. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you, yeah, talk about, you talk about the ecosystem of animals, plants, humans. But from what I understand, you know, a lot of Singapore's farms are now becoming kind of um, part of our concrete landscape, right? A lot of them are on rooftops. So how do you see that image? Because, you know, farming used to be a very romanticized ideal where, you know, you have cows and you have chickens providing manure. So how do you see um, us um, having a rooftop garden, but at the same time still, still maintaining that kind of, aspirational quality about it you know okay um so i mean i can only speak for myself because i do soil based farming um so you know edible garden city has a few amazing farms in the city that they've set up soil based uh so i i envision us going in that direction if you know if anything and if you wanted to do farm to table you could just you know bring the farm onto the rooftop right and still maintain that that level of um, you know, being organic and so on. Um, I think that we would struggle to maintain that romanticized idea of farming if we were to turn into hydro farms, um, which is pretty much where we are going in the next few years. Um, and ob- for obvious reasons, I think it's more of a survival thing rather than anything else. Uh, no comments on that from my side, but 
um, you know, I, I certainly have my preference. Lah. Yeah. Mm. And tell me a little bit about the bookshop. It's a new arm of um, what you're doing with your with Wild and Wonderful Edibles, right? Yeah. So uh, we now collect a few books on horticulture as well as food, and we try to put it in one, um, just one web page where people can just buy off and, um, you know, so they don't have to navigate too many sites. And of course, we offer pretty steep discounts on the books uh, for some of them. And yeah, I mean, it's just to encourage people again to have that broader understanding of food and not just seeing it as something that you cut up or something that you put on the pan, you know, it's more of like, what is the context? And once you see the bigger picture and where food sits in that big picture, I think that, you know, it really helps to deepen that, that connection with it. Mm. And how do you define the scope of the books that make it into your bookshop? Okay, so usually uh, we try to go for stuff that um, uh, provides some historical background to a certain food or um, provides some cultural points, right, to note about a certain foods. So your book, for example, is on there because it, it matches all those, <laughs> all those things. Um, we try not to... Um, we try not to offer books that will not apply to Singapore. So for example, things like beekeeping books we don't offer. Um, you know, uh, hydro we try to, but I think that the systems are different in, in the two countries that um, our country and the, the place that it was written. So we, we can't do that. So again, it's trying to um, tie in whatever is on the, the bookstore to what can be applied here. Hmm. So interesting. I feel like there isn't, you know, anything like this before your bookshop came onto the scene, right? There, there was no consolidated kind of resource um, yeah. and platform that actually showed people that, you know, these are the books that you can get for, uh, to start to, to learn about produce from a local perspective. So I think that's great. So moving forward into the future, how do you think you would like your business to evolve? So I think we are just going more into the educational branch now of things. Um, and I mean, we're actively looking for a farm space that we can use as well as a farm team to help manage the space. Um, so, you know, growing produce will be put on hold for a while now, but we're definitely going into more of research and um you know, offering these books and, and the, talk, the talks and the workshops that we already do. So it's really just um, keeping, you know, the, the culture alive. And um, yeah, moving forward, you know, you're, you've been speaking to so many chefs. What, do you, what is your sense of how the food scene is changing in terms of local, the local movement? I feel that, you know, for the longest time, I always thought of it as a marketing gimmick, you know? Okay. Uh, because, you know, you talk about seasonality, you talk about farm to table, but I feel that there isn't a very strong sense, like a very strong connection between the farms in Singapore and the restaurants itself, you know. I mean, how many chefs actually go out and pick herbs from the farm? It, it normally gets delivered, so it just feels like another supplier, you know, just that it comes from a farm instead of... Uh, you know, from the marketplace or something. Um, yeah. But I feel that at the same time, I sometimes question the motivation behind associating farms with restaurants these days. 
because it's done with a lot of fanfare. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, once you use something that's hyper-local, you get this farmer to grow it for you or this gardener to grow it for you, it comes up like all over the media. So what exactly is the intent behind that, you know, is, is it to um, kind of boost business because this thing is so in and so hip right now? You know, is it riding the wave? That is my yeah. initial thought. And obviously, I feel that in Singapore, farming is a very unique situation. We can never equate farming in Singapore to what we have in other countries like Australia, just because the land um, poses such a big constraint, right? So I feel that in that sense, we have to rethink what a farm truly means and how a genuine and authentic relationship between growers and the chefs can be instead of just applying these catchphrases from the West to what we're trying to do, you know. And also I feel that there has to be more expertise in Singapore when it comes to growing, you know. And yeah. I think we also need to democratise how Singaporeans are able to access these hyper-local produce, you know. Yeah. It can't just be a select few chefs who have access to cat whiskers or like, you know, all these fancy local produce, which is like very hip, but I wish that it will trickle down like what you said to everyone, you know, that it will yeah. become normalized in cooking. And I'm just trying to figure out how that is possible because our wet markets are not exactly... Um, I mean, the demand isn't there. So a lot of the sellers have stopped or have reduced the number of days that they sell local produce. And it truly saddens me when I go to the wet market and I see uh, airflown Western produce like endives or radicule instead of things like money Thai or go to gola, like you said, you know, and I, I feel that it's a very complex issue. And I think at the heart of it, people just need to cook more. Young people need to cook more. And yeah, that's true. Yeah, and not just cook more, but to develop a taste for local food. Yes, exactly true. Yeah, because I mean, with, I mean, as you and I both know, with Peranakan food, with you know, all your traditional Chinese food, it takes a lot of time, a lot of preparation. And you know, traditionally, it's done in a team, right? You, your whole family helps you to cook certain dishes. Um, and I think that you know, young people just don't have that maybe nowadays they don't have that incentive to spend that much time uh, and put in that much effort for, for this. So, um, you know, maybe there has to be some sort of reward system to get people to, to cook, to cook, you know, in a certain well, way. That is so Singaporean, right? Yeah, like, yeah but I, I don't know how else to. Like carrot and steak. It's like just with the... Uh... I think walking, right? The government actually had to incentivize people to walk and yeah. like, oh, you walk 5,000 steps, you get this voucher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a silly thing because I mean, just the, the flavors itself is rewarding enough, but you know, to even get people in the kitchen to do that is, uh, it's a feat in itself, you know, like oftentimes when I'm cooking something in the kitchen, people will be messaging me on Instagram saying, oh my God, that looks so good, you know? it looks amazing you know i can't i can't believe you're actually making all these things and you know and then they'll go back to doing whatever they're doing which is not cooking and you're asking yourself you know um why why is this the case because you and i we're not so different right <laughs> and um it's it's funny how um people seem to just feel as if 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 they contribute to saying oh this is nice that that's all that that's all that they should be doing right 
Yeah, well, even just going to a restaurant, I, I, I understand that it's really important to support restaurants, but at the same time, people feel, you know, this is just my assumption and what I think, but I feel that people are kind of like soothing their consciences by, you know, just say going to a local restaurant and it's like, oh, okay, I'm voting with my dollars to help preserve our local heritage. But the thing is, Heritage food is not just meant for chefs to be cooking in their restaurants, you know. It, it, yeah. You know, in order for it to be kept alive, every single one of us has to take a very active role. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, you, you have to be friends with your grandparents because, you know, kuih chap is one of my favorite things, the most favorite thing that I could ever eat. Like, it will be my last meal on this earth, okay. And uh, my grandma refuses to teach me how to make it for some reason, you know, um, she's taught me how to make all, all the kueh's, um, but you know, kueh chap, I think because she consider, considers it to be a bit of a dirty job and a hard job to, 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 to do kueh chap because you have to clean out the intestines, you know, you have to wash the stomach and the liver very, very well. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't want to teach me how to do it. So um, it's something that I've been trying to convince her <laughs> to slowly um, release whatever she knows about it to me because she makes the most amazing, you know, organ soup. So um, I think some, some, some youths maybe my age don't have that kind of patience or they don't see the point. Definitely. I feel that it's something that comes with age as well. You know, it's something that, you know, you look back in retrospect and you are like, oh, why didn't I tap into this resource, you know, or yeah. why didn't I take an interest? Because I feel that when you're growing up, the whole world just revolves around you, right? Yeah. Um, and like, you know, what, even in interactions with grandparents, how often do we actually ask them about their lives? It's always them asking us about, oh, how are your grades in school? You know, how are you? Um, have you eaten this? So I think it's very fascinating to, you know, turn the narrative around and it's time for us to start reconnecting with the older generation and to truly find out about them because I, I feel that that really anchors us in our identity as Singaporeans. It does. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I, I meet with a lot of people from my platform and they are usually in their 30s to 40s and they'll tell me things like, oh, you know, I wish that I learned how to make all these squares from my grandma because my grandma used to be able to make it or, you know, I wish that I learned this curry recipe or this fish soup recipe. You know, I should have done it earlier. And I think uh, for me, it's kind of a situation where I'm, I'm put in a place that I know this happens often and I don't want to be in that place, you know, where I, I go back and I'm like, oh no, I should have learned this. <laughs> so um, I think that maybe more awareness has to be done, especially for the younger chefs. You know, it doesn't, I don't think that it's going to start with anybody, you know, my age. I don't think that it will just suddenly be a thing, but, you know, maybe in the younger generation of chefs, we could instill this sense of like, yeah. Wonder. I feel like it should be part of the syllabus when you go to like at sunrise. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I've been sort of telling uh, you know, people, right, who have asked me and I said, you know, you maybe you should include this section. <laughs> Yeah, well, even in home cons, you know, like mandatory for everyone because it's quite interesting because my friend, uh, she's in the conservation sector and she was talking about how it's funny that we don't know our local plants and our local, say, birds. Mm 
So the thing is, like, we only know, like, really generic animals, you know, in, in like, the really broad categories. Like, um, maybe that is a rose, this is a bee. But we yeah. don't know things like, oh, that is angsana. That is, yeah. like, uh, you know, like, there is this lack of um, really in-depth in local information where... Where I see in other countries like Australia, you know, where people are like, oh, that's a banksia. Or like, yeah. you know, that is a, something else like, um, like, you know, they, they also have a lot of indigenous plants and like uh, what they call bush foods now, right? Like, I, I feel that, you know, now there is this growing renaissance throughout the world to really reconnect with our heritage. And so I think it's very timely and, you know, it's great that we have technology with us to, to help us really reach out to the younger people because I, I feel that that's so important yeah exactly so, so I feel that it's really great what you guys are doing thanks so much so that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. My guest on the show was Joanna Chua of Weird and Wonderful Edibles. Also, we have some copies of the Singapore Noodles planner left over from our stockists and we would love to get them into your hands if you are still planning to get them. We're offering up to a 40% discount on it depending on how many copies you get. So go onto our website to purchase your copy. And also, if you have been enjoying our wet market movement past the Pasar on Instagram and you would like to see weekly ingredient roundups in your email then sign up for the newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com substack is spelled s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k so once again thank you for your support towards singapore noodles and i'll catch you all next week